Morning, church. Morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. So, um, okay, we're, are we all good? We're all good. Rock and roll. Awesome. <laughs> Let's just pray, okay? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much that you are already here in our midst. We ask today that we just become already more aware of your presence, of your kingdom that is already here in our midst. We pray right now, that Lord, as I preach today, whatever is of you, let it stick, whatever is not of you, let it fall. And I pray right now that our hearts are open and ready to receive. Lord, will you bring transformation to us both individually and as a community? that we may be a people who leave this place even just a little bit more like Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, for those who don't know, we are moving into a new series for the, la- for the next, goodness gracious me, a long time. Definitely over 15 weeks, I'm pretty sure. But we want to be ready. We want to be prepped going into this new series. It will be the series going through the Sermon on the Mount, which I would say is one of the pinnacle sermons that Jesus gives, with, which shows us what exactly it looks like to be a people, both individually and as a community, going into the world and living the Christ-like kingdom that Jesus has brought. With last week, Jared spoke on, well, Trinity Sunday, which, which as Jared said, seems a bit odd considering that well, every week should be about God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, what we see in Trinity Sunday is the revelation of who God always has been. That as we read in Hebrews that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as such, we know that through Jesus Christ that we serve a Christ-like God and that that God has always been Christ-like. And as such, we serve in a Christ-like kingdom. If I'm going to title this sermon anything today, it's this. A more Christ-like kingdom, participating in what God has made true in Jesus. Today's reading comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 17 to chapter 5, verse 1. Now, this section of Scripture happens just before the Sermon on the Mount, but also just after Jesus has come down from the temptation in the wilderness, and also just after his cousin, John the Baptist, has been arrested to set the scene, to set the mood of what's happening here. So here we have Matthew 4, verse 17 onwards. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Good news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering from severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. 
10 years ago, I was in East Timor as part of a school trip. We went to this particular area in rural East Timor. It was so rural that the local language of the country, which is Tetan, wasn't even spoken in this particular area. We were off the beaten track on top of this hill in this village. And I mean, it's a village with like, um, like tent, like straw huts type style village made with mud pillars to make the walls of the huts. And this particular village had a water supply all the way down at the bottom of the hill. So you can imagine it was very difficult for the villagers to go down the hill every single day to get water and climb all the way to the back up to the top of the hill. Our equivalent in Australia of turning on a tap for them was having to go all the way down the hill, all the way back up. We as a school bought the final supplies needed for them to connect the last parts of their plastic piping in order to get the piping all the way up to the top of the hill with a water pump at the top so they can finally just start pumping water and have the tap like we have here. The day was long, but eventually it was all put together. And so we now have water running to the top of the hill. And I remember the first time they turned on the pump and turned on the tap and there was this little boy with excitement in his eyes, started, started running through the village, speaking in a language that I, I had no idea what he was saying. It turns out, I was told later, that as soon as the water turned on, he was so excited. He started running. He started saying in his local tongue, good news, good news, we've got water. We've got water in the village. Good news. I hope to use that story today to serve as a picture of when Jesus talks about good news and when we subsequently talk about good news, what is meant by that word, that phrase, gospel. It means this. Good news is that something good has happened around us. And as a result, everything is now different. And the good news according to this passage of Scripture, the change that has happened around them and subsequently around us is this. The kingdom of heaven has come. The first hearers of this announcement of good news, of this announcement of the kingdom of heaven, would have known all too well these familiar words. But unfortunately... Not for the good. You see, Israel was under Roman occupation. And this ruling empire used these same words. They used the word good news. They were referred to the kingdom. And so when this ancient empire would go and completely ransack an entire city, where they were going and after doing that, institute their social order, and in the process, desolate the locals into horrible living conditions whilst the victors of Rome will enjoy their splendor, they would say, ah, good news. Caesar is king. We are here. We're bringing the empire, the kingdom. So here comes Jesus against the backdrop of Roman-occupied Israel and in almost wink-and-nudge fashion uses Rome's propaganda language of good news and of kingdom, except it was not about the rule of the empire of Rome but rather good news of a different type of kingdom with a different type of king. In other words, there is a new king on the block, but it ain't Caesar. And so as we enter into this text, we have to familiarize ourselves with its political realities. For we too, as a people, have to reckon with a new type of king, bringing a new type of kingdom. And yet, this language of good news and of the kingdom of heaven, it might have rung hollow for some of the people until, of course, they saw in action what exactly was meant by good news and kingdom. <laughs> Likewise, in our own culture, against the backdrop of a rotating door prime ministership in our own country, 
of oddball leaders across the globe and of relatively recent history of leaders committing genocide like that of Hitler or Pol Pot, or for that matter, recent leaders committing genocide by sending people onto tiny islands, we too can be sceptical of such readings. And of course, we can be sceptical of even preachers like myself who employ the language of king and kingdom and so-called good news. Because after all, unfortunately, our imaginations have been so fractured fractured by a recent history of kings, of prime ministers, of presidents, who would instead, when they try to promise a better future, often fail or worse, whose promises aren't good news for all, but only for a select few. Unfortunately, we to ourselves who call ourselves Christians, we've at times, Lord have mercy, at times we've been part of an institution that has sometimes sided more with Rome than with our own Lord. Now, this is not to throw shade and say that all hope is lost, but rather to recognize realities for what they are and what they have been. It is to empathize with a world that, of course, is skeptical of any type of language that, for them, speaks of language of power or rulership. Though I want to propose to us today that perhaps our deepest angst is more a reflection of how we feel towards types of power as opposed to power in of itself. How we feel towards types of rulership as opposed to being ruled in of itself. That it isn't that we ought to live in a world without a ruler, but rather we desire that we have a global ruler, in deep in our bones we long for this, of a ruler who doesn't rule by the love of power, but through the power of love. There was a survey that was sent out many years ago across Canadian universities, and they had this one question. The question is, um, what does the world need right now? With all the problems, what does the world need right now? You know what the number one response was? Someone to believe in. Deep in our bones, we long for someone to believe in, for something bigger than ourselves to change this world and shake it up from the inside out. And the good news of this gospel is that maybe, just maybe, there is a new king on the block that is bringing a new type of kingdom that will birth a new type of people living unto a new type of world. The reality is is that we actually can't escape rulership. That might sound odd, but hear me out. For example, on a personal level, I can't escape rulership. Uh, On a personal level, the evangelist Becky Pippett put it like this in one of her famous quotes. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks after power is controlled by power. The person who seeks after, after acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Or perhaps we can't escape rulership, of course, even on a societal level with those that charge at the top, whether that be politically or commercially, with those who have been co-opted by a false idolatry and ideology of the good life and then feed it to us through mass media and political campaigns. In other words, rulership is inevitable. However... However, we can live recognizing that in Jesus, there is a new king on the block who has bought a new kingdom. And we as a people, both individually and as a community, we are invited to recognize this new king, this Christ-like kingdom, societally and personally. For like in the text and in the rest of the Gospels, if we want to see what a Christ-like kingdom looks like, where do we look? At Christ himself. Jesus doesn't stop at words when he proclaims the kingdom of heaven arriving, but rather he shows us in word and in deed exactly what a Christ-like kingdom looks like. 
And as such, we have to re-enter this text and reimagine around the person of Jesus just what exactly good news of the kingdom of heaven is. First thing to say is that good news of the kingdom of heaven wasn't that Jesus has come down to offer a way to escape this corrupt world. Now, often we think that, that we think that when Jesus talks about the, quote, kingdom of heaven, end quote, we think that Jesus meant that he came down in order to just to swoop people back out of this bad world into his sky kingdom called heaven. But actually, kingdom of heaven language, and for that matter, kingdom of God language, as seen in the other Gospels, those two phrases are interchangeable. They refer, though, to the same reality. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, then, doesn't mean that Jesus is only coming down to swoop people up to go somewhere else. Rather, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven coming, it's speaking of Jesus' presence ushering in the very presence of God's rule and reign over this world. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in line with the prophetic hopes and dreams of the prophets of old, was about a king who would bring God's rightful rule and reign for the whole world into this world, into the here and into the now. And Jesus carries forth this hope for the world in himself. (laughs) My friends, Belinda Carlisle, the famous singer, was right. When she sang, ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. (laughs) Preach it. Preach it, Belinda Carlisle. At the end of Scripture, we have this vision towards the end of history as we know it of Jesus finally appearing again in the flesh. And it's not a picture of going somewhere else, but rather, as the writer John detailed in his revelation, it was a future where he saw this, he says, and I quote, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. The question then isn't, Have you got your ticket to heaven? But rather, does this place, does this action, does this thing, does this whatever it is, does this what I do, does this look like Jesus shaped and modeled heaven on earth? For my friends, this is where all things are heading. And so in returning to the text, we're invited to recognize that everything Jesus is doing is about bringing God's future kingdom rule right now, rushing forth into the present. So much so that he can indeed rightly use the language, the kingdom of heaven, as arriving, being at hand, being in their midst, and subsequently in our midst. And if we take seriously Jesus' version of good news and the kingdom, then we should expect... The unleashing of Jesus' kingdom would, of course, include some unraveling of the empire's rule. Establishing God's kingdom means a dismantling of other kingdoms. Though, as we shall see, such dismantling doesn't mean destroying, but restoring. Now, when Rome comes to establish their version of kingdom, when they came into the local communities, what did it look like? Well, it looked a lot like violence. It looked like chaos as they came in. It looked like executing people who wouldn't follow in their way. 
It looked like dividing. It looked like destruction. All unto a world where worship of the Roman way and of Rome was the be-all and end-all. And what do we see in contrast? When Jesus brings his kingdom, the dismantling of empire looks like nonviolence. It looks like peace. It looks like unity. It looks like healing. All unto a world where love of God and neighbor is front and center. In this particular story, we actually see Jesus' healing, dismantling of empire within this very scene. For example, when Jesus heals people, there are two particular Greek words that are used here. There's a Greek word for disease, and there's a Greek word for sickness. And the same Greek words for disease and sickness that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus more specifically, was about when God delivers Israel, the the people who were in slavery, the Hebrews in slavery, from Egypt's grip, and subsequently Egypt's diseases. what, What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. Egypt itself was an ancient empire. And, it's treat, and it treated its Hebrew slaves as the lowest of the low. They didn't live in fancy houses or anything. I, I bet you right now there would have been overcrowding, which, which would have led to what? Bad sanitation. Leading to what? Diseases and sicknesses among the people. Those same Greek words for Egypt's diseases, which I think could be roughly translated to empire's diseases, We can say then that perhaps we hear what Rome's way of treating the locals did to their physical environment and subsequently their physical health. And then how Jesus' healing ministry was itself a dismantling, a social shake-up of the way things were to bring about a new kingdom where empire no longer had the right to beat you down. Perhaps a modern application for us. I wonder what it would look like to be the beloved community to each other and to our neighbours against the backdrop of how our version of empire can sometimes lead to public health disarray, whether it be physical health, mental health, or community health. It's a food for thought for one there. And the dismantling of empire with the emergence of Jesus' healing kingdom attracted people from everywhere. We read in the text from Galilee to the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. The good news, this kingdom isn't just for a small group of people, but this kingdom reverberates across any lines that empires of the world will draw. In this scene, we already see a glimpse into the world's future, a kingdom filled with every tribe, nation, and tongue worshipping Jesus. Now, by the way, this is just one passage amongst many which leaves with us a profound point. We are to be a people who makes known God's kingdom, not as an exclusive little club, but rather as a kingdom that is welcoming and inviting to all, the gates thrown wide open, so to speak. Now, we are talking about a singular Lord Jesus, and yet this singular Lord Jesus breaks down any walls that we might put up and invites all in. All in all, in what we have seen, we are invited to let our imaginations be reshaped around this type of Christ-like kingdom, around this type of Christ-like king. Now, if you would give me a moment of permission to move beyond this particular passage and cast our minds and hearts across the rest of the Gospels, we get a fuller picture of what exactly this kingdom of heaven on earth looks like. When Jesus fed people, he was doing it to declare that he would be making the world free from hunger. When he healed people, he was doing it to declare that he was making the world free from empire disease. When he gave sermons, which, by the way, this is what we're going into with our series. When he gave sermons about what it meant to follow him in his kingdom, 
He was doing it to declare that his ethics of love were becoming the default mode of reality. And so to live life following him and in his ways was the call to literally live on the right side of where all history is heading towards. And when Jesus himself died and rose again from the dead in a new type of physical body, this death and resurrection became the epicenter of Jesus being crowned the victorious king of the cosmos. In this kingdom victory, he declared that the very powers of evil, of sin, of death itself, that thrusted Jesus onto the cross, could not hold him down, but that rather in the death of Jesus, the death of death, trampling death under death. And what has become true for him in his resurrection would one day become true for the whole cosmos. My friends, I get it. It's hard to see exactly this victory when you look at the world around us. Let's just be honest. A world filled with death, with tears, with injustice, with mourning. We only have to look into our own mourning and our own hearts sometimes. We'll turn on the TVs and turn to the news. But the scandal of the Christ-like kingdom is that there is indeed a new king on the block already. I know that sounds dumb, considering the world. And believe me, I'm not blind. But the point of the Christ-like kingdom being already here isn't that the world is now Christ-like, though that's indeed the world's sure and certain future. The point of the Christ-like kingdom being already here is to say that the evils around us are, in principle, as a result of the death and resurrection, defeated. Seen as being defeated, of course, supremely in the death and resurrection. If the kingdom is the true reality of how things are and of how things are going to be, sinning then, you know, the thing we all do, Sinning or sin is living in unreality. Because Jesus, if Jesus' kingdom is the default mode of reality, sin is living in that unreality. I think that's why the Apostle Paul in, in Romans, I think Romans 5 and 6 and 7, for that matter, 8, but I'm pretty sure that's the imagery you find there. The Apostle Paul doesn't go, well, stop, stop doing that sin. He's going, wake up, wake up. Don't you already know? Don't you already know? Remember your baptism. Remember. Remember this world that we already lived in. It's been baptized in God and His glory. So sin is living in unreality. And suppose we were all sinning, which we all do to some degree or another. That in turn creates this world we live in. But that doesn't mean that this world in its current state is the default mode. Through resurrection, we see that the new, there's a new default mode to reality. There's a new kingdom that has already broken forth, the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's as if Jesus is like a sunrise, ushering in a new and bright sunny day. But we are all living as if it's still nighttime. And yet we are called to be a people who ourselves wake up to the new day of what has already been made true in Jesus. To participate in what's already true for the world. The tyranny of the night is gone and the new day has dawned. And so let us wake up to what is most true. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we are invited into this other section of the gospel reading. That just as Jesus had his calling for his first disciples when he said, come, follow me, that we in turn are being summoned as a people to also hear those words. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. We have the kingdom, and now we are called to participate in it. You know, in ancient Jewish culture, here's a little fun fact for you. Uh, little boys would go and learn Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. It was a very special thing to do. And the family had this dream, for the most part, that their child would get older and would be so good at Torah, so good at the first five books of the Bible, that a rabbi would personally choose them to become the rabbi's apprentice. This was like the big thing to become in that culture. But it was very rare 
That didn't happen to all the children. It was very rare. So when a rabbi decided upon this very special selected child, the cream of the crop, so to speak, they would say to this child, come, follow me. And as I said, this was rare to happen, to be picked, to become a rabbi in training by following the rabbi. If they weren't picked, which most of them weren't, the rabbi would often say that they were good at Torah, but they weren't good enough for them. And that they should instead and go, instead go and learn the family trade. By the way, there were many family trades. One of them was fishing. So here we are in this scene. Jesus coming, two fishermen. Most likely, once little boys rejected by the religious elite. And now the excitement when they hear someone coming to them saying, come, follow me. This is a revelation for us and for all that against the backdrop of a world that sometimes says that you have to be perfect to follow Jesus, against the backdrop of a world that says that you're not good enough and you don't have the pedigrees, we see that Jesus isn't a Jesus that expects a pedigree or a degree or some sort of insider knowledge to follow him, but rather he heeds the call for us all where we're at right now, especially, especially for those who don't think they're good enough, especially for those who society has rejected, that we too can follow him, that we don't have to have it all together to follow Jesus. We don't have to be perfect or even good enough to follow Jesus. We just got to follow Jesus. The whole point of following somebody is that they're ahead. They're ahead of us. We don't have it all together. And yet our Jesus does. And yet, what were these disciples getting themselves into? And in turn, as we go through this series and as we grow in our own faith, what are we getting ourselves into as we seek to follow Jesus more and more, further up and further in? That just as Jesus' healing ministry, as you saw in the other section of the gospel reading, that was a, as we saw, that, that healing was a subtle way of dismantling empire and bringing God's kingdom. We too can't miss the subtlety of this calling. Let me explain. Jesus says, come, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. We often think fishing for people means to go out and just evangelize more people to get more people, more people, more people to get their tickets to, to heaven. There is nothing wrong with evangelism. I'm all for evangelism. But that's not exactly what was meant by fishing for people. Now, we have to understand then that when the Roman Empire took over this part of the world, it included taking over the local industries within the area, which included fishing. Caesar owned all the body of water, and all the fishing was state-regulated for the benefit of the urban elite. With heavy taxes and state-controlled fishing introduced, it went from the locals once being empowered in their own community and in their own trade to the locals becoming almost like slaves within their own livelihood. Perhaps a bit like children making clothes in factories overseas. When Jesus comes along and says that it's time to fish for people, it would have echoed the scriptures of Amos and Ezekiel where that term, fishing for people, was a saying often used for judgment upon those who use their wealth and power in dehumanizing and exploitative ways. So when Jesus comes and says, come, fish for people, of course they drop their nets. Because they were people oppressed, hungry for change, hunger for, they were hungry as a people to see the exploitation, dehumanization stopped. They had in their bones an ache for revolution. Jesus called them into a type of fishing, which was them casting aside their existing social order and into following Jesus in a kingdom where justice for the poor, mercy for the oppressed, and enough for all reigned as the new way of running the world. This perhaps serves as a reminder for us. What we are being called into as a community and both individually 
as we follow Jesus, this type of life will turn us upside down and inside out into a life that challenges empire just as much as it challenges our own hearts. Other than that, these disciples had no idea what they were getting themselves into. It would have been such a shake-up for the very world around them. And of course, they still had images of what they thought it meant. They thought probably meant taking up the sword and, and violently killing the Roman empires and the, the centurions and, and all that. We see later that's certainly not how Jesus does power or does conquering. That in a bit. But if you think about it, these first disciples following Jesus, dropping what was familiar to them, that was a bold trust on their end. But a trust nonetheless into the new life that was going to have in it the marks of the life of God working in their midst. It might have been scary for them, and that was okay, because change can be scary. And yet they dropped what was familiar to them, for them, their nets. What was their normal to enter into something new? And so perhaps as we seek to participate in what God is calling us to do, whether as a community and or individually in your life, of course there's going to be a natural fear because change is scary. Paradigm shifts of how we view everything from our relationship to finance, our relationship to community and family, and how we interact with others. Uh, that sounds daunting. And yet, the God who calls us to participate in this nonetheless beckons us. And it's okay to be scared. It's okay to not be sure what happens next. It's okay to not be entirely sure what it all looks like. But by the way, this is where the Sermon on the Mount series is going to come. Very helpful. What does it look like? And yet our Lord still says to us, follow me. And so as we go through this sermon series, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, which will be in some sense a way of unpacking what this following looks like, what this kingdom looks like, we're going to be confronted with things that may generate in us discomfort. We're going to hear things from our Lord which won't be easy for us to hear. And yet some advice, not just for you, but for me as well, that we sit with this discomfort, that we sit with this felt resistance. We just sit with it. And in time, we'll unpack what it is about what we're hearing that's producing this discomfort and resistance in us. We're not going to pretend that it doesn't exist as we go through this sermon series. But neither should we, in knee-jerk reactions, throw it all off. But rather, we're going to sit with it. We're going to question it. And we're going to unpack it together as family as we seek to follow Jesus more and more in his kingdom. Participating in the life of God, in some senses, it's always a challenge. And it brings a, a discomfort. But that's okay. Kingdom life is a little bit odd. It will look weird. It will at times make us uncomfortable. All new things are like that. Going against the grain and the flow and flavor of how society lives, let alone how we live, can be like pushing against the wind that we've been so used to just being swept up in. And yet in time, we'll feel God's wind, God's spirit, blowing us into new and better ways to be human. So whilst we will be exploring what it looks like for, to, to live in this kingdom as we, impact, as we unpack the Sermon of the Mount, what we can say is this. A kingdom that doesn't look like Jesus, taste like Jesus, smell like Jesus, move like Jesus, sound like Jesus, ain't the kingdom. We can't implement the victory of a Christ-like kingdom through the means of the ways of the world. We are to become a people who, instead of spreading the gospel through the sword, which as a result means the church dies by the sword, we are to spread the gospel through our words and actions of love. We are to become a people 
who instead of being fearful of people different to us and so strengthen our walls of the church building and send out gospel flies instead, we are to embody... <laughs> We are to embody God's neighborly love and hospitality to all people. To weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. We are to become a people who, instead of prioritizing agendas based on some seven verses of Scripture, an interpretation of seven verses of Scripture, pouring millions of dollars into particular no campaigns, let us rather see over 1,500 verses of Scripture that speak of God's heartbeat, of God's concern for the poor. And as such, with an enthusiastic yes, pour our resources into that to help alleviate poverty. We are to become a people who, instead of participating in political polarization in such ways that dehumanize those we disagree with, that we instead find ways to love even those people even if you disagree with them. That's a hard one. You know, it's, it's baffling to think that Jesus even healed the Roman centurion's ear when Peter cut it off. Rome was the oppressors. Ooh. Nonetheless, we are also to become a people that instead of the church supporting those in power who would run the world like Caesar in such ways that they... In such ways that they never critique those in power because that's just getting too political. Oops. <laughs> Despite the fact that Jesus calls himself a king, I don't know how much more political we can get, that we instead use a power called love to empower those on the margins of society and speak truth to power in such ways that shape culture in positive and empowering and just ways. How did we ever think that we could implement the victory of Jesus' kingdom through any other ways than what we see in Jesus himself? Especially Jesus on the cross. May I have the band come up, please? Later in the gospel, when Jesus' followers were asking Jesus who would be his right-hand man, Remember, they still had this idea that Jesus was going to bring this sword, warlord-like kingdom and that he would just slash everyone up and that he would establish his kingdom where, oh, they can be perhaps the new elites of society. When they asked Jesus then with that mindset, so who's going to be your right-hand man? We've been discussing this. What does Jesus say? He basically said this to them. By the way, this is an imaginative paraphrase. You got this whole power thing all wrong. Want to be first? You must be last. Want to be powerful? You must become a servant of all. Want to conquer the world? You're going to do it through self-sacrificial love. Want to be king? Will be like a king. Get on your knees and wash people's feet. Want to defeat your enemy and see them vanquish? Kill the ideology, but not them. And do it through your radical and scandalous love. Want to live the kingly life? Die to yourself and with all your ideas of what kingdom looks like passed down from you from generation to generation. And instead, take up the cross and follow me. And when you do that, you will live. This is the kingdom we are called to participate in, in whatever God calls us into. And yes, we will fail at time from time. That's inevitable. We will fail to love God and love neighbor. We will fail in both the big things and in the mundane things as we seek to embody God's kingdom. And if it wasn't for the fact, if it wasn't for the fact that this king who calls us, if it wasn't for the fact that this king who calls us to follow him is the graceful and merciful and empowering king, God, we will all be screwed. But he's the good king. We don't have to have it all together, but he does. We don't have to bring the kingdom as if we are to pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps. God brings God's kingdom. And yet, neither are we to stand still. We are saved from sin in order to be saved into a new life of following Jesus to participate in the life of God. 
And the further we follow him, the closer we're getting more and more to the kingdom he will one day make on earth in full. For the cross of Christ has defeated the powers of darkness and sin that's held the world back from its eventual renewal and transformation. And now we are a people found in God's new day that has dawned on us. Called to play, dance, sing, imagine and live in this new day that has dawned all around us. Unto the day where God's healing rays of sunlight will permeate all of creation in such a way that we can dare to believe that one day God will be all in all. So my friends, whatever we talk of kingdom going forward in this series and what it looks like to participate in that, remember that it looks like who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Today, may we see that against the backdrop of the inevitability of being ruled in our personal lives and in society, that there is a better king and a better kingdom. And may we, both individually and communally, seek to participate in the kingdom of heaven, which is the participation in the life of God, unto a world made new. Heavenly Father, speak to us today. Lord, open our hearts. Show us what areas both as a community and individually where we need to turn away and turn to you. And find in you love and find in you the Christ-like kingdom that not only wants to change the world, but also change our hearts and change our lives. Speak to us today. Heal us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, as we come around the table, I just want to stay in the spirit of prayer and just be attentive uh, not in the abstract but in the particular to what are those things that are being unearthed in us as we come around the table let's take a moment now you might want to uh, relax into closing your eyes and turn to the Lord and ask what what are the things that need to be dismantled in me Lord Lord is people who feel like we've uh, maybe been rejected that we weren't part of the first cut that we ended up fishing instead of making the all-star team that we don't have the qualifications or the degrees or the CV the resume that would make us the kind of people that could be a part of what you dream for the world Lord what is it that you call us and you say, follow me. Lord, we ask that you would unearth in our hearts right now, before we come to the table, those things that we fear. What are the empire diseases that have infected us? What are the empire diseases that keep us from your healing dream for our world. Lord, who are those who I would be tempted to envy or to hate or to exclude or to feel better than that you love like you love me? 
Lord, underneath the sin, what is the false, the unreal way of seeing you, of seeing myself, of seeing others? that keeps me from the simple joy of knowing your love and participating in your kingdom. I ask that as those things arise, you actually carry them to the table. A God who has given all that you might come that you can bring all that you fear would disqualify you and trade it in for God's grace and God's mercy. Church, we are forgiven. We are released. We are set free. And so we can own all the stuff that we fear would make us something more or less than a child of God. So together in prayer, Lord, we confess, most merciful God, we have sinned against you in the way we think in the words we use in what we do we have been kept from loving you with all that we are we have held back loving our neighbor loving the stranger and loving our enemies as you have loved us so for your sake, we humbly repent. We long to be caught up in what you are doing. We long to be freed from the unreal, from the distractions, from the addictions that we might see you and follow you, our Christ-like God, and see ourselves and others as you see us, as children of God. So for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might delight in your desires and walk in your ways. Let us respond fully to your invitation. Amen. Church, this is the table, not of the Lord, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is prepared for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So as those who are actually serving us this morning come forward, we invite you to come, those who have much faith and those who have little, those who have come often and those who come for the first time, those who have tried to follow Jesus, those who have failed in following Jesus, those of us who in this space right now have just decided to follow Jesus, come. It is the Lord that invites you and it is God's will that those who desire Christ shall encounter him here. So church comes so a benediction church we come as we are but we are sent out not the same sanctuary he speaks over us a new name to bless and rebuild this city so we go broadcast good news to the poor let the blind see set free the oppressed live jubilee let it be in his liberating grace that pardons and powers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen.